The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Welcome to the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran and our series on the Gospel of Luke. This is Sharon Doran from SeekingTruth.net. We have been looking at the Gospel of Luke. And you, most excellent Theophilus, you, most excellent beloved friend of God, have been uh, sitting in with me and we've been exploring this incredible gospel just slowly, just line by line. But now today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. And I want to tell you something Dr. Peter Craved has said. He said that the church should not be mistaken for a political body because The church is an organic body. That means it's a living body, and no organic body can be a democracy. It must have a head. Christ gave the church a head. Okay, so we know from St. Paul's um, letters that he always says Christ is the head and we are the body. It's the mystical body of Christ. But Christ knew that he was ascending back to the right hand of the Father, and so he gives the earthly church ahead as well. And he gives it to Peter. It's in Matthew 16, where Jesus Christ himself says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So it's clear that Jesus Christ has made Peter the rock the head of his church, the Prince of the Apostles. And so from St. Peter, our first pope, we have what is called apostolic succession, and it is a succession in an unbroken chain to Pope Francis, Pope number 266, as elected in 213. So if you go to St. Paul outside the walls in Rome, you can see the mosaic of each pope in the unbroken chain around by the ceiling around the whole entire church. You can buy the poster with the 266 popes on it in an unbroken chain. So it's just interesting. This is the way the Lord God of the universe in his godly authority set it up. But in John 13, while they're having their very last final Passover Seder, and it'll be the last one for the life of the world because he himself becomes the Lamb of God, the new Seder Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. Right then when they're eating in John 13, Jesus foretold Peter's three denials. The one, the one he's chosen to be the leader, the first pontiff of his church, the one who's been given the keys, is going to deny him not once, not twice, but three times. Now, when you walk into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and there's the chair of St. Peter with the church fathers, two from the east and two from the west, holding up his chair to the power of the heavens and the Holy Spirit in this bright window in the back is shining over the chair. Do you know what's carved in the back of the chair? If you look closely, it's the reinstatement of St. Peter from John chapter 21. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? 
feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Yes, Peter denied Christ three times. But in the back of that chair is the scene of the reinstatement of Peter. Three opportunities to say, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus still trusting this sinful man to lead his church. We have something in our church called infallibility. I looked it up in the dictionary. It means the quality of being infallible. What's that mean? The inability to be wrong. Well, in the church, in the Roman Catholic Church, we have something called papal infallibility. And it's the doctrine that is specific in specific circumstances where the Pope is incapable of error in pronouncing a dogma. So, what is this? How can this be? Well, at the final Passover to the Twelve, and, and it's not everybody. Jesus is saying this to the twelve that are there with him at the final supper. He says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, he dwells in you, and he will be with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he is entrusting those 12 by the power of the Holy Spirit that he's going to bring to them in that upper room, the night of Easter, the night of his resurrection. He's going to bring it to those 12. Uh, And he's going to give them the power to interpret. By the power of the Spirit of truth, they're going to be able to interpret. He's going to make them remember all the things you've said. Because there's a lot of ways to interpret Scripture. Just like our Supreme Court has made laws, but they're interpreted many different ways throughout the land. So we need a Supreme Court to interpret them. We needed this 12. This It's a number of governance also. It's a court. It's the 12 that will interpret the Word of God. They will protect it. That's what the magisterium does. They protect the Word of God and interpret it by light of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, which he gave them this power. So we say this is one of the marks of the church. There's four marks of the Catholic Church. It's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And so that's what we mean. It has to be apostolic and guided by the Spirit, as Jesus said. We say that every Sunday in the Creed, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Now, I ask you, how many times has the office of the pontiff spoken infallibly. The Pope has the right to speak infallibly. It's been defined. It was defined at Vatican I in 1870 that the Pope could speak infallibly. How many times in the 2,000 plus years has the Pope in his office spoken infallibly, absolutely without error? Only twice. Only two times. And both times he did it, it was regarding his mother, the mother of the church, Mary. Both times the Pope has spoken infallibly have been in regard to Mary. The first one was declared by Pope Pius IX in 1854, and that was the document, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. This Pope, Pope Pius IX, he's the longest reigning Pope in the history of the Catholic Church. He served for 31 years. He's first followed by John Paul II, St. John Paul now II, who served 26 years and five months and 18 days. 
But really, the longest running pope was Peter. We think that he served between 34 or 37 years until his martyrdom in Rome at the Order of Nero. So anyway, Pope Pius declared in 1854 the dogma infallibly of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. The second time this was done was also regarding Mary, and it was Pope Pius XII in 1950 declared Mary's bodily assumption into heaven, that this would be an infallible document, Mary's bodily assumption into heaven. Both of those were declared before Vatican I, but they were both grandfathered in after the first Vatican Council in 1870. What does it take to be an infallible document? There's three requirements for a dogmatic papal infallible pronouncement. Number one, the pronouncement must be made by the lawful successor to Peter. Number two, the subject matter must be in the area of faith and morals. And number three, the Pope must be speaking ex cathedra. That means from the very seat, from the very office of St. Peter. So when Pope Francis speaks on airplanes today, or he uh, speaks on Twitter at Pontifex, those are not infallible statements. Only twice has the church used that. Okay, so one of these is in regard to the Immaculate Conception. It took place, this pronouncement, on December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, in 1854. And it's not about Jesus's conception. It's about the conception of Mary. And we talked about it last time. St. Joachim and St. Anne had an immaculate conception. They conceived Mary. And here's what the infallible doctrine says that we must believe. The most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race was preserved free from all stain of original sin. Mary's salvation was won by her son, Jesus Christ, through his death, passion, and resurrection, and was not due to her own merits. We know Mary needed a Savior, too, because she sings in her canticle, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Jesus is her Savior through the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the entire human race. But she was preserved free from all stain of original sin because she is that pure vessel that's going to hold God in her womb. And so this very first infallible proclamation from the Holy Father, very first one in history, is the Immaculate Conception. And so to commemorate this, the Holy Father, Pope Pius IX, hired the artist Francesco Podesti to spend the next 11 years of his life painting the Immaculate Conception Room at the Vatican. Why would someone spend 11 years of their life painting this room? Well, the Mother Church is going to catechize children, her children, with beauty. Beauty is a transcendent. And when you go into this room, and I've been in this room at the Vatican, it is such a feast for the eyes. And everyone's trying to hurry through this room because they want to get to the Raphael rooms because they want to see the School of Athens, the famous painting there as well. But you must, if you go, you must spend some time in the room of the Immaculate Conception painted by Francesco Podesti because it is incredible. He spent 11 years of his life painting this room. When you walk in on the first wall, you will see a bunch of scholars debating 
Well, for three years, from 1851 to 1853, these scholars and theologians and biblical experts of the church went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, arguing, debating, hammering it out, this theological discussion about Mary's Immaculate Conception. And so they did that for three full years before 1854's proclamation from the chair of St. Peter by the Pope. The second wall has uh, the assumption of Mary into heaven, being crowned queen of heaven. But the main wall, the biggest wall, is the actual painting of the proclamation. And above is the church triumphant, glorious. Below is the church militant, where the ceremony of the proclamation in St. Peter's of Basilica is taking place. And the Pope wanted this painted. He wanted it memorialized because it was the first infallible doctrine of the church. And in the painting, he told the painter, you must paint me standing. He's standing by the chair of Peter, ex-cathedra, he's speaking, but he had to stand. Why? Well, there are a group, there's an apostolate of nuns. They're called the Missionaries of Divine Revelation. They are the official tour guides for St. Peter's Basilica, assigned by the Pope. And they are in the Vatican Museums providing tours of art and faith. So they're explaining, they're catechizing to the faithful what these paintings mean. Well, Pope Pius is standing. He's standing. He's forced to stand during the ceremony because unexpectedly, and I think supernaturally, a ray of sunlight came through the window and blinded his eyes. And this sunlight was coming from the altar of Our Lady of the Pillar at St. Peter's Basilica. And in the fresco, it shows this sunbeam, this bright sunbeam, bouncing off the cross. There's St. Helena is holding the cross, the exaltation of the Holy Cross, this, this golden cross. She has it high above, and this sunlight is bouncing off it and refracting right into the eyes of the Pope so that he cannot read the document unless he stands. And he wanted that forever put into paint on the wall, on the fresco, because he felt it was a sign. He felt it was a sign. He interpreted that sunbeam as a heavenly confirmation of this dogma. And he stood and proclaimed this beautiful dogma about Our Lady, that she was immaculately conceived. And it was a sign from God because December 8th of 1854 was a very, very cloudy day. And so when this ray of light came through blinding him, he knew it was a sign. In the painting, the face of Mary, the artist put the exact same face of Mary on the face of Eve. The two women look like identical twin sisters. Because he knew that the face of Mary is identical to Eve because of the teachings of the early church fathers that Mary, Maria, is the new Eve. And so he paints them. He paints them just the same. And then there's a chest below. It's a furniture chest, and it holds the, the facsimiles of the original documents of the Immaculate Conception, the first time the Pope spoke infallibly from the chair of Peter, ex-cathedra. The ceiling is also wonderful, and I'll talk about that in a minute. We'll return to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, 
the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. The Memorari Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. Hello, friends. Please take a look at SeekingTruth.net and find out how you can join as an individual online learner. Sharon's lectures are presented in a rich media format with audio, video, and an abundance of beautiful images which draw you into a deeper understanding of God's Word. In addition, part of the Seeking Truth mission is to build parish life through the communal study of God's Word. To encourage parishes to begin a Bible study, Seeking Truth offers its curriculum free of charge for parishes hosting a class. Please visit us at SeekingTruth.net where you can register to bring Seeking Truth to your own local parish. We now return to Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. Let's review a minute. Mary is saying to the angel, how can this be since I have no relations with a man? Mary also is a virgin and she is intentional about her perpetual virginity. John Paul told us that she had the intention of remaining a virgin forever. She knows Shema. If she lived in the temple, she heard that Shema 6 prayed every day, Deuteronomy 6, that I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my might. I mean, she is sold out to live intentionally as a virgin for him forever. He is her bridegroom. Now the angel has come and said to her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born is going to be called Holy, the Son of God. This little girl, 13-year-old Jewish girl, pure, this pure chamber, immaculately conceived, is going to house the Son of God within her own body. The angel says she will be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Greek, and we always have to look at the Greek, this is what Jesus would have read from the Greek Septuagint. And the word for overshadowing is episkiesi. And every translation, it says overshadow, 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 episkiesi. There's only two times that this Greek verb is used in the New Testament. Once here in Luke and once in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 17, 5. So in Luke, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will episkiesi you, will overshadow you. And in Matthew 17, 
He was still speaking. It's the scene of the transfiguration on Mount Tabor. And God has, Jesus Christ is on top of the mountain. Peter, James, and John are the male witnesses watching. And he is transfigured so bright that it's blinding their eyes. And on one side is Moses. On the other side is Elijah. And a voice from the cloud, from this overshadowing cloud, this episkiesi, they've been, he's, he's been made, the divine presence is being made known right here to the apostles. And God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples fell on their faces and were filled with awe because they saw the divinity, the true presence of the divine God, episkiesi is going to have something to do, this overshadowing is going to have something to do with seeing the true presence of the divine God is there. So let's look at it in the Old Testament, where it's also used, and it's always used in regards to the true presence, the true divine presence of God. For instance, in Exodus 40, verse 34, the cloud covered the tabernacle of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, what is that? Well, we know that Moses was, was, would, had a very special relationship with God. Moses would talk face-to-face like to God as one speaks to a friend. And Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle of the meeting because the glory cloud had rested above it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle, so he also had to exit. All the people knew when Moses was talking. The, the millions there knew when, when Moses was talking to God because this cloud would come and overshadow the tent of the meeting. The overshadowing meant the true presence of God was there. When Moses uh, was told by God in Exodus 31 how to build this tabernacle, there was a young man named Bezalel, and he was the son of Uri. Guess what? He was from the tribe of Judah, the same tribe of Mary and Jesus and, and Joseph. He's from the tribe of Judah. And the Lord God said to Moses, I have filled him with the Spirit of God with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship. And he wanted him to build the Ark of the Covenant. Bezalel, from the tribe of Judah, filled with the Holy Spirit. God gave him knowledge and intelligence. Those are gifts of the Holy Spirit. So God would show him what to build, and he would build it exactly as God wanted it. Well, that was housed in the tent of the meeting then. And it was this portable thing that they could pack up and go when God told them to, because the true presence, the divine presence of God dwelt with them. And when God was in the tent of the meeting in the Ark of the Covenant, the glory cloud was there. And it was a pillar of cloud by day, and at night it turned into a pillar of fire. So they could still see it. Because the Holy Spirit all throughout scriptures can be fire, like tongues of fire at Pentecost, or he can be cloud. And so the true presence of God was with the Israelites. Now remember, too, that Moses used to speak face-to-face with God. It says in Exodus 33, the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. Wow. And in Exodus 34, when Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses after he had been speaking to God, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. His face would glow because he had been in the true presence of the divine. And it says in Deuteronomy 34.10 that there was not arisen a prophet since this, like Moses in all of Israel, who the Lord knew face to face. So Moses got to speak face to face with the living God. But after the incident of the golden calf, the apostasy of the golden calf in Exodus 32, from then Moses never got to speak face to face with God again. Why? Because Moses said, Lord, 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 please, he interceded on behalf of the grumbling, sinful Israelites. 
the Lord was so mad at these people. The Lord said, Moses, how about you and I just go forward from here? You and I go on together. And Moses said, Lord, what will distinguish us if you don't go with us? No, 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 Lord, no. And God said, if you do this, Moses, if you intercede on behalf of them, then you won't be able to see my face again. You're going to give up that face-to-face time with me. And Moses conceded to that. The Lord said in Exodus 33, but he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And so whenever the Lord would pass by, now Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock and the glory of the Lord would pass him by and he couldn't see God face to face anymore. He gave that up to intercede on behalf of sinners. Just like Jesus gave up three years in the throne room of the Father, 33 years actually, but three years where he interceded on behalf of sinful people of all humanity. He gave up FaceTime with the Father to come and do that for us to open that gateway back to his father for us. So Jesus is the new Moses. But instead of seeing him face to face, now his presence was in this ark. And they covered this ark with them, the Ark of the Covenant. They carried it wherever they went. And there were poles on it so they wouldn't touch it. They they just carried it on these poles, the priests, the priestly division, because after that, the Levites became the priests because the Levites killed 3,000 that day. Moses said, who was with me? And it was the Levites. So the Levites are made the priestly class now instead of the firstborn son, which it was before. Now it's the Levites. They have the ark. And whenever, it says in Numbers 10, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And wherever they went, God was with them. The divine presence of God was in the Ark of the Covenant, and that Ark was very, very powerful in battle. They took it with them wherever they go. They had seven nations they had to get through to to take the Promised Land. Well, when they get to the water of the Jordan, and they're going to cross into the Promised Land with Joshua, Moses has, has died by now, but the Lord God opens the Jordan. It's flooded at flood stage. And the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan River at flood stage, and all Israel was able to cross over on dry shod. The Ark always led the way. The divine presence of God was with them in the Ark and always led the way. And they needed that Ark. They needed God with them. One time when they were fighting the Philistines, and this is in Samuel 4, the Ark of God got captured by the Philistines. And it says in 1 Samuel 4 that the glory had departed from Israel for the Ark of God had been captured. Now the Philistines had the Ark and they take it to their own town of Ashdod and into the temple of their god Dagon, who was represented by a statue. He was half man, half fish. And when the ark was left there, the next morning they come in and Dagon is crushed and crumbled to the floor and the Philistines are afraid. They start breaking out in tumors. There's mice. It's, it's a wonderful story to read, but they don't want the ark anymore. They are afraid of the ark and the ark is put on oxen in a cart and sent away by the Philistines. And lo, the Israelites are working in the fields at Shiloh and they see the oxen coming with the ark on the cart and they can't believe it. The ark of God is returned in 1 Samuel 6. And some of the men go to look in the ark because they want to make sure the Philistines haven't messed with it or put something in there to hurt them. And God, because these men looked into the ark of the Lord, he slew 70 men that day. And the people mourned because the Lord had made a great slaughter among the people. You don't look 
into the ark of God. When the ark is finally brought into the temple that Solomon built, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priest couldn't enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the house. That's similar to Moses in the meeting tent. When the glory of the Lord came, Moses had to get out because the glory of the Lord filled the tent. The priests had to leave. When the glory of the Lord, Episciasi, overshadowed and filled Mary, no one could come in. You can't enter the ark of the Lord when it's filled with the glory of the Lord. And she was filled, overshadowed, Episciasi, by the power of the Most High God in the form of the Holy Spirit. Just as the glory of the Lord overshadowed and dwelt in the Old Covenant ark, the glory of the Lord overshadowed and filled and dwelt in Mary. And so, my friends, the next title of Mary that I want to talk about is Mary, the new ark of a new covenant. Last time we talked about her being the new Eve. She's also the new ark of the covenant of the Lord. And remember, we talked about this too, that at the time of Jesus, there was no ark in the temple. Why? Very important. Because Jeremiah the prophet had gone to the mountain where Moses had gone up and had seen the inheritance of God. And Jeremiah brought and found a cave. He brought the tent and the ark and the altar of incense, and he sealed it up there before the Babylonians confiscated it. And some of those who were with him, with Jeremiah, they came to mark the way, but they could not find it. And when Jeremiah learned they even tried to mark the way, he rebuked them and declared, the place will remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. That place of special consecration, my friends, is the womb of the Virgin Mary. We'll pick it up there next time. Sharon Doran at Seeking Truth. Thank you for joining us for the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. Join us next time as we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. For more information, be sure to visit SeekingTruth.net.